Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is December 21st, 2015, and this is episode 1698 of the Survival Podcast. It's kind of interesting to me in a little bit of a way because guess what that means? That means the Christmas special that will run on the 23rd of December will run on show 1700, so we'll end the year. Uh, this year of the Survival Podcast at an even number. And you know me, I'm obsessive with numbers and patterns, so that's just kind of a cool thing to me that I thought I would point out today so that when it happens uh, in two days, you're like, yeah, Jack said that was going to happen. And, of course, the uh, Christmas special I, I play every year right before I leave for the Christmas holidays, and that's what I'll be doing again this year. The Christmas special has become kind of a uh, tradition for a lot of members of this audience. There is a written transcript of it. So for those that don't want to actually listen to it with their family, some people read it to their family because it tells the true history of Christmas in America and how Christmas and Thanksgiving together became healing holidays in the years uh, that uh, led to, that led, you know, led up to current times between the Civil War and now and how those were both spread in opposite directions through a relatively still young country. Before I get into your uh, feedback for today's show, because since it's Monday, it is a feedback show, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, Fortress Defense Consultant, the awesome Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors at FortressDefense.com will help you to complete that final linchpin in the gun operator triangle of efficiency. You know, people often ask me, what is the next gun I should buy? And what I say is maybe you should invest in some training. If you already have a good shotgun, a rifle, a handgun, and maybe a few other things for hunting and sporting purposes, instead of just buying another gun because it's cool or it was on the cover of a magazine, maybe you should invest in that final linchpin, the final moving part in that triangle of efficiency. You know, first you have the gun. You buy a gun off the shelf. It is what it is. It does what it does. You can rely on it to be what it is. Ammo is the same way. Good quality ammunition. You can never have too much of it, but you can buy it off the shelf. Those two things are commodities. There's one thing that really requires ongoing investment. That's you, the operator. You're the final moving part. A gun and ammo in the hands of somebody that doesn't know what to do can be more dangerous to the people that are trying to defend themselves than it can be a help to the situation. And it's also the case that even if you know how to handle a weapon professionally, you know what you're doing mechanically, there's a mental component when lives are on the line that cannot be condensed down into words. It has to be trained. It has to be drilled into you. You have to realize that if you get into one of these situations, what you'll end up doing is falling back to your lowest, not highest level of proficiency. That's where training kicks in and takes over. The kind of training you'll get from Frank and his cadre at FortressDefense.com. Check them out today. Learn how you can become an efficient operator of that weapon that you're carrying for the defense of yourself and others. Sponsor number two today is Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Uh, what are you going to get from Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason? Shockingly enough, you can get Berkey water filtration systems from Jeff because he is the Berkey guy, the actual one, the only Berkey guy. There's a lot of places you can get a Berkey, but I only know of one Berkey guy, and I only know of one person with Jeff's fanatical dedication to his customers. Absolutely beyond belief how dedicated to customer service Jeff is and to making sure everybody gets uh, what they were expecting, and if there's a problem, it gets corrected fast 
and properly. Uh, Jeff's been with me as a sponsor for more than five years now. That's kind of unheard of in podcasting. It's really kind of unheard of in conventional radio, if you really think about it, to have sponsors stick with somebody that long. He does a great job for this audience. I, I haven't had any real complaints about him in five years. I had one person mad, but it was well the post office did it, and there's only so much a person can do about the post office. Um, Jeff just takes care of everybody, and he has the, some of the best pricing available because those years of great customer service have made him one of the top distributors for Berkey in the world. So he gets some really great pricing that he passes along to you. He also has a lot of other really great stuff for your prepping needs. You'll find all his Berkey stuff and all his other great stuff, like the Survival Cave line of long-term storable foods at his website, directive21.com. Again, the website for Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason, directive, and the number's 21, followed by a dot and a com. Check him out today, and don't be the guy that got your Berkey from the non-Berkey guy when you could deal with the original, the one and only, the true Berkey guy, Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. I got two for you today, and then two little bullet points. I'm going to read the bullet points for it first. Uh, Alex has them under... Too good not to mention. Of course, this is the year 1698, because the episode 1698 at tspwiki.com. Bullet point one, attacks on beards. Beards are no longer in modern style, so Peter the Great of Russia places attacks on beards. Priests are exempt. <laughs> Just when you think you've heard of everything the government would ever have taxed or will tax or has taxed, they taxed beards. you, you got to be kidding me. We also have the Prussian army starts goose-stepping. They will also introduce iron ramrods this year to increase the speed of reloading their muskets. So if you ever wondered when uh, the uh, the Prussians, which became the, the Germans, started the whole goose-stepping thing, the year was 1698. Um, boy, the tax thing. I could almost do a whole segment of my own just on that. Uh, but what I have for you on the two main segments there, the steam-powered water pump is patented, and uh, that's interesting. But I also have Yo-Ho-Ho, Captain Kidd Turns Pirate, That's the one I'm going to read. A few years ago, King William III gave Captain William Kidd a letter of mark authorizing him to attack pirates along the New England coast and to harass French shipping. He is a privateer, but his past suggests he was once a pirate. His crew is unruly and difficult to control. During one trip, his ship, the Adventure Galley, he failed to salute a British naval ship. The British Navy sent a shot across his bow to remind him. Instead of saluting, his crew turned and slapped their backsides. This did not go over well, but what really caused Captain Kidd to take turn for the worse was when he waylaid an Armenian ship, which Kidd, Kidd considered French. Unfortunately, it wasn't French, and there were English passengers aboard who were stripped of their worldly goods. When word got back to England, it was a political embarrassment, so Captain Kidd was declared a pirate. When Captain Kidd realizes the British are hunting for him, he starts buying his assets, also known as treasures, Uh, burying his assets, also known as treasures, in Madagascar and along the New England coast. One such cache will be dug up on Gardiner's Island. Captain Kidd himself will be arrested, tried, and hung for pri piracy in 1701. They will leave his body hanging in public for three years as a warning to others. My take by Alex Shrugged. Was Captain Kidd really a pirate? Politically speaking, there was a lot of motivation for the government to declare him a pirate. He really goofed when he hit the Armenian ship. It made England look like a pirate nation, so they disavowed his actions. My personal opinion is he was a pirate. He was once a pirate, took a legitimate commission to become a privateer, and at times lost control of his crew, who were actually were pirates. When you're leading a band of cutthroats, it's difficult to back up and say, uh, hey guys, time out. We, we made a mistake on that last one. We need to give them their stuff back. That would have mut They would have mutinied on the spot, just like they did to the previous captain. Rumors abound regarding Captain Kidd's treasure, 
It's always fun to think about digging up buried treasure, but if you actually want to dig it up, dig up the New England coastline, ask someone first. You don't want to be arrested. Um, boy, that just has a loaded thing at the end of it there. Yeah, don't dig a hole without asking first. You might be arrested. That's interesting. Anyway, um, here's my take on this, which is totally different than Alex's. Um, isn't it interesting that the government basically gave Captain Kidd a license to steal, and it was all good and well until he stole from people they didn't want him to steal from? See, Alex describes it as a legitimate commission. I don't consider it a legitimate commission. I mean, it was legitimate under the law at the time, and that's what Alex means, but what I consider it is a license by the state to steal. Sounds like taxation to me. But th this is exactly how government operates. They take certain thugs... And they give those thugs the ability to steal on their behalf. And as long as they do it in the way that's outlined by the state, it's all good and well. When they dare steal in a way that the state didn't intend them to steal, as though the possessions of an Armenian are, are less uh, important than the possessions of an Englishman, uh, oh, now, now there's a problem and we'll hang your body in, in, in the sky for three years for people to look at as a warning That when we give you a license to steal, you only steal from the people we say it's okay to steal from. The more things change, the more they stay the same. The state can do nothing without the threat of violence at the point of a gun. That's just the way that it is. And the more you study history, the more you realize how true that is, up until the point where they'll tax you for having a beard. And I just bet you if somebody had refused to pay Peter the Great's tax on beards, they would have been threatened with violence or even death, for failure to render taxes onto, you know, in that case, I guess, the czar. All right, with that, let's uh, remind you guys real quick about the Member Support Brigade. Year's almost up. Hey, be a great Christmas present, maybe even to yourself. You help support the show at uh, 18.3 cents an episode, and and you get discounts on all kinds of stuff you're buying anyway. I just had a workshop here at the uh, at the little Nine Mile Farmstead yesterday, Uh, we planted several hundred trees and did some other cool stuff. And a lot of people were MSB members, as you might imagine. Every single one of them said, I get my money back and some every year just by using the discount. So think about that. And remember, if you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active due to your prior service, or a first responder like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, all of you qualify for a discount. Just email me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Put TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I will get back to you with the discount code so that you can sign up, do that before, not after you join. With that, let's get into uh, your feedback today. I got a lot of cool stuff today, uh, a lot of variety, and I like when I get a lot of variety, and it's not just all news stories about bad stuff, although although I have to say uh, that there is some of that today because, well, <laughs> just like the history te segment teaches us, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Uh, but I wanted to start out with an interesting one. I've actually talked about this before, but never by name. And I, I, I might not even say it right, but it's called Rumtoff. And this feedback comes from Samantha, and Samantha says, I'm Oxymoron2 from Zello with a question. Have you ever had or made Rumtoff? Background, Rumtoff is German for pot rum, and it's a way of preserving fruit without canning, using, without canning, using sugar and alcohol instead. I mentioned on Zello this week and stumped those those on at the time. When I explained what it was, the responses were, why have I never heard about this? Why aren't permaculture people doing this? And I wonder if Jack knows about it. Uh, the answer to the last question is, Jack knows about it, but with a caveat. 
and that is that I know about preserving fruit with sugar and alcohol. I didn't know that it was actually a thing from Germany called Rumtoff. Um, and I've actually talked about this in some of the food preservation episodes, specifically with preserving fruits in the past. And it's basically you layer fruit in a container, you, you add sugar, and you add alcohol. But you know, you need a high enough proof alcohol and enough sugar to get the whole thing done. And you do that through a season and you end up with this beautifully alcohol infused fruit that has a lot of its flavors that are still in it that if you preserve fruit any other way, uh, is not retained. It, it's different than freezing it. It's different than, uh, canning it. It's different than making jams and jellies. It's, it's, it's pretty spectacular. Uh, it was something we did a lot. In Pennsylvania, uh, and you know, thinking of all the German heritage in the area, even though my grandparents were Ukrainian, um, it's probably something that maybe they picked up from all the surrounding German Dutch. And we didn't have anywhere near the variety of fruit that uh, I'm trying to create here, uh, or that you might in a in a environment where you're growing a lot of fruit. But I would surmise that in Germany. Uh, where this particular version of this comes from, that it wasn't everybody just preserving their own fruit, but when you went to market and there's fruit seasonally available, you'd buy the best non-blemished fruit to do this with. And what we used to make, but my grandmother didn't use rum. She actually used vodka to make this. So the rum is interesting to me. And we did it primarily with the fruits that we could just uh, basically harvest from foraging. So we would always go out. We had these big trips that we would make in the spring where like 20, 30, 40 of us would get together and make a whole day of it and pick blueberries. So she had a pretty big crock, and into that crock would go um, a, a fair amount of blueberries. And a little bit later in the year would be when the wild strawberries were around. The wild strawberries these are little, very intensely fruit-flavored delicacies, and there'd be another layer of those put in there. And then we had some apples growing around the property, They were just random apples. I mean, they were no one really is sure where they came from. My old man always insisted it was just from throwing apple cores out, which about the age of the trees, the age of my father, uh, and you know, and his brothers, it kind of made sense that that's probably just tree-grown apples. And they were okay apples. They weren't the greatest apples. My grandmother made pies out of them mainly, and uh, an apple cake. I think it was a Jewish apple cake. It was just fantastic. And those at the end of the season would complete that, and then another layer of sugar and another layer of rum. So that was all ours usually was, and I was a kid, so if, unless I snuck some, I didn't get much. Um, but you actually end up with two products out of it. You end up with this fruit-infused liqueur, because I'll give you the, the ratios here in a minute. Uh, it's quite a bit of sugar that goes in, and you also end up with this alcohol-infused fruit. And there's this mythology around things like trash can punch, which I'll tell you what that is in a second, that when you imbibe fruit with alcohol, that all the alcohol goes into the fruit, and the fruit becomes really highly alcoholic, and uh, you get drunker from the fruit than you do from drinking. This is this is mythology. Okay, I'll tell you where this comes from. Trash can punch. There's a lot of different versions of it, but when I was in the army, it was something we used to make for what we called a bohio party when somebody was leaving country, leaving Panama. So the bohios were like this big open cabana, like it's like a thatched roof with uh, like like you know grass and palm fronds for a roof, and it's open on all four sides. And we had them all over the base, and you just go and then um, little hibachi girls and stuff like that. And we'd all just go out there, 
put on a radio with some music and cook on the grills and make a big thing of trash can punch. We take a waste basket, we throw a bunch of fruit in it. Down there it was like papayas and uh, mangoes and uh, usually watermelon from the from the PX and uh, pineapple. And we just throw that in there and then you dumped like two bottles of hundred proof vodka in and then like three cans of Hawaiian punch and then a bunch of ice. And you know, you got a bunch of people drinking that, but everybody's sauced. And at the end, you got the drunken munchies because you're done with the grilled food, and everybody eats the fruit, and they're like, oh, I got so drunk from the fruit. Now, you got drunk from the punch. So I'm not saying the fruit's not alcoholic. I'm just saying that whole mythology that, like, it sucks up the it sucks up whatever's there, okay? And you can only fit so much alcohol into a, an orange slice or a pineapple slice. Um, and there's plenty of it left in the liquid, just saying. So you do get those two products out of it. Let me... Um, give you the basics here. I have some links I'm going to give you. It's two links with articles and recipes and uh, one with uh, just a Wikipedia link on this because this is something I think a lot of people would like to do. Um, looking at this picture, there's raspberries in the picture and I'm thinking raspberries, pears, pomegranate, peach, uh, plum. I, I, you know, I, I'm starting to think about doing this next year because I might have enough fruit to actually make a crock of this. And since I've gone to doing most of my fermented vegetables in mason jars, I have this big, beautiful crock that would be perfect for this. Um, let me read this bit to you here. It says, The tradition of Romtoff in Germany goes back centuries as a way to preserve fruits of the season. Now it has become a favorite way to celebrate any special occasion or to enjoy whenever you want a taste of delicious fruit soaked in rum. See our five-liter Romtoff here. The ingredients, fresh fruit, approximately one pound. Sugar, approximately half a pound. Three, good quality, unflavored dark rum to cover the fruit by at least one inch. It's traditional to begin with the first fruit of the new growing season. However, since many fresh fruits are now available all year round in markets, you may begin the process at any time. Start with your favorite fresh fruit. Choose a fruit which is ripe, not overripe, and full of flavor. Ideal fruits include pineapple, cherries, apricots, nectarines, peaches, pears, plums, grapes, strawberries, um, raspberries, red currants, and gooseberries. The following fruits are not recommended, but may be added if you insist. Blackberries and blueberries. They can be bitter and discolor other fruits. As I said, we used to use blueberries. I didn't think they were bitter. They did turn everything blue. And I would think blackberry really would turn everything black. Watermelon cantaloupe chunks can make the mixture watery. That makes sense. Rhubarb can make the mixture sour. Bananas are too mushy. Citrus is too acidic. And apples take on an odd texture. That was not my experience with apples. However, again, I guess you have to take all things into consideration. When my grandparents did this, the apples went on at the very end, and this stuff never made it past Christmas. It was a very small amount of this made. It was like the only time my grandmother ever touched alcohol. So that's my limited knowledge with that particular mixture. Uh, directions. Wash and dry the inside of the rumtoff. Wash and dry the first chosen fruit. Remove any stems, seeds, or pits. Place one pound of fruit and half a pound of sugar in the romtoff. Pour enough rum to cover the fruit by at least one inch. Cover the opening with tightly with plastic to avoid evaporation. Place the lid firmly on top. Store in a cool place away from heat and direct sunlight. You may even store the romtoff in a refrigerator. Every month add an additional layer of fruit. For each additional layer of fruit, follow the instructions above. Throughout the summer, repeat the process for each new layer of fruit until your room cloth is full. If 
if all the fruit you want to use is available the same day, you may fill the rum trough with layers of fruit and sugar and rum. Then allow the entire mixture to sit for four to six weeks. By all means, feel free to test the fruit along the way for yumminess. Check periodically to make sure there's no extra fermentation taking place. If you see bubbles beginning to develop, you have fermentation. If this had, happens, add rum that is 151 proof to suppress fermentation. I'll tell you what, you'd have to really, really, really have some sort of aggressive something if you're dumping any proof rum and that much sugar into something uh, to get much fermentation. But I guess you could go with that 151 if you wanted to. Um, Serve the room top fruits with its syrup, hot or cold over ice cream, cake, flan, puddings, or cheesecake. Serve in an elegant dish topped with whipped cream or crème fraîche. Uh, crème fraîche. Crème fraîche. Okay, that's how you say that. Serve as a side dish with any game meat. Serve as a strained liquor. Serve the strained liquor as an after-dinner cordial. Add two teaspoons of strained liquid to champagne for a unique, elegant cocktail. I bet that would be good. Uh, and lay some of the warm fruit and thin crepe-like pancakes to roll up. Add whipped cream and ice cream if desired. Not my thing, but I think you can see this is a cool way to preserve fruit and to have that fruit. And this is not meant to be used to intoxicate the hell out of yourself. Okay? Trash can punch is for 20-somethings in the Army and college dorm students. Okay? This is for, you're, you're in January, the, the idea of fresh cherries or fresh um, pears is, is miles away, especially stuff from your own property or from locally produced stuff. And inside that rum tough is something that actually has that going on for it. So I'm going to try this. Um, it's something I've talked, again, I've talked about in the past and I have made my own liqueurs. I've done, you know, blackberry liqueur and things like that where you're making basically a simple syrup, uh, with high proof vodka and infusing that with like blackberries and straining them out. And I've done that with currants too. It's pretty fantastic. But I actually, even though I know about this, I've never actually done it this way. And, uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what I can find this late in the year, uh, to be able to make something that approximates this and report back on my results. I'm really looking forward to kind of building it through the spring into the fall next year with whatever fruits uh, I get, because I'll be in my third year next year, and a lot of these trees will be fruiting. And that seems like a really cool project to go all the way through 2016 with. Maybe some of you will take that journey with me. So when I said we have variety and different things today, that's different than a lot of what we've talked about lately. And it's kind of a good thing to think about around Christmas time, because if you do this next year, this next Christmas, Christmas 2016, Uh, maybe you can be serving this uh, as a side dish or whatever or part of a dessert or something for the adults and the family. Uh, this is not for kids. Let's go with a, a farmsteading, specifically a, a duck question. Uh, I think it would be uh, the best way to put this. And uh, it's an interesting one. It's one I hadn't really ever had before, but I just had a student at a recent workshop that um, – I think actually gives me an opportunity here then to uh, to talk about this uh, with a little bit more information than I would have had or otherwise as to something that can go wrong. So the question is, Jack, I have two and a half acres in Florida. Two of those acres consist of a pond. Well, my pond envy show a little bit. You know, I wish I had a two-acre pond. I have a three-acre piece of land, and if I could have a two-acre pond and a one-acre piece of land, I think I would do that pretty fast. So that's a good thing. I've been in the land for about a year. One quarter of an acre has been cleared. The other quarter hasn't been cleared yet. Can I utilize the pond by raising ducks? Thanks in advance. And this comes from King. Well, your majesty, I'd 
just the guy's name is King. I'm just playing with him. Anyway, um, so yes, there's no doubt that Dak can support a lot of Ducks. And the Ducks will really get a lot of forage out of the pond edge. So if you have a two-acre pond, you have a huge edge, a huge circumference. And they're just going to love that. And with Florida's climate and a pond and that edge, you can support a lot of ducks. You really can. Here's the issue that was just brought up to me. And, I, I mean, I would have already told you this was an issue, but it makes me think a little bit more about it. guy that was here told me he's got a friend, has a pond, started raising ducks. Ducks now live in the pond, won't go to bed at night, don't go back home. They all go to the pond, they stay in the pond, can't control them, can't find any eggs. So if you're raising ducks for meat or you just want them around or whatever, you pretty much just turn them loose there, and I'll get the fencing in a second, and let them be, man. That's just, There's nothing wrong with that, okay? Um, but if you're going to want eggs or you're going to ever want to harvest for meat, you need to train them to a home And they would be much more safe if they're trained to a home as well. And training ducks to a home is really easy. But if you if you slack off in your management, they will lose respect for you and they'll do whatever the hell they want. They are, they are one of the most hurtable creatures I know of and most trainable creatures I know of. And I would say they have to be the most hurtable and trainable bird. That there is. Geese, I think, are a close second. But ducks, if you train them that at night you go here, and they're trained to do that from ducklings, and you're religious about your application of that management principle, they will go to bed every night. And especially if you entice them with nummy nummies, right? They're food. So the way we handle our ducks is we let them out in the morning, I feed them sprouts, They're fed just before bedtime. We put feed in their holding area. And they're not fed all day long. They're, they have to go out and forage. The fact that that food goes there at nighttime, that makes them gravitate toward that area. And occasionally, if we want them to go to bed a little bit early, we have to kind of go over there and tell them all ducks go to bed and kind of run them in with the broom of doom or whatever. For those that don't know, I have a little push broom that I use. I call the broom of doom because when they, uh, when they don't really want to listen and you just point that broom of doom at them, they know you need business and they get into their holding area. The holding area has quite a bit of things that make it important. Number one, if you don't let your ducks out till 8, 9 o'clock in the morning, 90% or more of your eggs will be in that holding area. Otherwise, especially with a pond, especially domestic ducks, they'll lay freaking eggs while they're swimming in the pond. And there'll be eggs at the bottom of the pond. You'll never find them, right? They'll have them all hidden in the weeds and stuff like that. And since most domestic ducks are not very broody, you won't even end up getting babies out of it if you wanted to have a broody mother incubate or whatever or pull some eggs aside and incubate them yourself. That's not going to happen. Um, if you get some muscovies, they'll breed, but since they're going to find their own nesting areas, all you'll get is more muscovies. You won't be able to really collect enough eggs to propagate other species and other varieties. So that that's a concern. The other concern is if you ever decide you wanted to harvest you know, one duck for meat, well, you could probably throw some feed out. They come over and you net one or something, and, and you're good. But it's a lot of work. If you ever want to harvest like a dozen or two dozen ducks for meat, and they just kind of are feral, it's, it's complicated. They, what, are you going to go out and shoot them? I mean, you can, but that's going to disturb. See, one thing with harvesting, right? And I think you could go out with a 22 and snipe ducks in the head, and if you can shoot worth a damn at the distance you can get to a domestic duck, uh, it's a pretty humane way to, to slaughter. I mean, if you're shot in the head with a 22 and your head is about... 40 caliber, and a 22 caliber bullet goes through your head, your troubles are over immediately, 
There's nothing left. You're done. Go out. Blacked out. Done. So it's not that that's the problem. It's that this gun going off and ducks flipping around. Now all the other ducks are freaked out at you. So it's not a way that I you know, would prefer that you harvest your ducks. You lose their trust. You lose because you know, he hurts us, right? That's all I start thinking. Yesterday I had to net one duck because we have people down the road who have had two ducks and one died, and they wanted another. They wanted a Drake to go with their duck, so she would calm down because she was freaking out because she had no fellow ducks. Again, you never have one duck, so I had to go out and net one of the young uh, Cayuga Drakes. It took me about two hours to get them to trust me again. Because I did something I'm not supposed to as far as they're concerned. I came out there and grabbed one of their buddies. You know, so it, it, it's a thing where when you're harvesting or calling, you want to be able to do it as gently as possible. If you have a holding area, you can set up temporary caging and let a select number into that te temporary caging, go in there and pick the ones you want to keep as calls and slowly do that over time, very, very calmly and placidly. And everybody else just goes out and does their day. And that's, I mean, I'm all... I'm all okay with slaughtering animals. It's something you have to do in this line of work. And you do get a valid meat product out of it, and all the meat you ever eat comes from that type of a process. But it doesn't mean we can't be respectful of the animal's life and their emotions and their fears and not have a certain amount of reverence for that life, even though we have to take it. And it also doesn't mean that we can't make sure that the ones that are still here don't just continue to be happy and do good things for us. So those are two reasons I'd want to have a holding area. I've learned a lot about holding areas. They get nasty. So the more ducks, the bigger the holding area you need. Our holding area is about the size of a 10 by 20, maybe I'd say 10 by 30, 15 by, I'd say about a 15 foot by 30 foot area is what we have. I need to go measure that and actually know it was just what was left when we kind of used what was available. And uh, it's big enough for 150 ducks, but it's barely big enough for 150 ducks. I mean, I put a lot of wood chips in there. The bigger you get, the more wood chips, the more money that costs. So depending on how many you want, I mean, if you want a couple dozen ducks, This is easy. You can set up a holding area that's, you know, 10 by 20 and have some water and feed in there and, and some shelter and train them to that and nothing, no problem. With the small amount of land you have, if you want to raise the ducks that that pond has the potential to support, you need a lot of ducks. I mean, you need a lot of a pretty big holding area and you're going to have to deal with a lot of duck poo and, and, and situations like that. So you got to balance that. But you certainly can do it. Um, if I knew more about the quantity you're talking about, this would be a lot easier. If you wanted to do something that was totally hands-off with it, the ducks just live in the pond, live in the edge, and you're just going to be happy with that. If you get some eggs, you get some eggs, but you're not really worried about it. And what you actually want is to be able to sustainably harvest meat, muscovies, especially in Florida. The caveat. <sighs> baby muscovies, ponds, turtles, dead baby muscovies. Baby ducks, ponds, turtles, dead baby ducks. Doesn't really matter muscovies. Um, the apartment complexes where I grew up in Jacksonville all had mus muscovies on the ponds that were in them. And there was a dramatic limit to the population of ducks that just never got out of hand. And that was because nine out of ten baby ducks got eaten by turtles. So what you would have to do then is muscovies are very big on finding an area to nest in. And when, once they go broody, they won't move. So you could even take this approach. You could create a small holding area you didn't put your animals in. And if you wanted to make sure your Muscovy girls were able to raise their babies to a point where they were big enough to not just be flat-out turtle fodder, when you find a, a broody Muscovy, you can easily pick her up. She might poop on you, and boy, it's nasty. There's a little adjunct video I did called the Poop Defense, 
And I, I not only can Muscovy's poop on command, I tell you what, they can choose to make it nastier. It, it'll damn near throw you into vomits when they do it when they're trying to defend a nest. But you deal with it, you, you put them in a carrier, you collect the eggs, you move the eggs to a holding area where they're protected and they can't access the water, you set up baby-friendly watering pans and food for mom, you put her in a nice quiet area with her eggs and she'll go right back on those eggs and brood. And then you can let those birds get up to maybe four weeks of age before you turn them loose to the wild, so to speak. And by that point, they're not just immediately turtle fodder to every turtle in that pond. Because if you have a two-acre pond in Florida, it's full of turtles. It, it really is. So that would be a concern as well. And that's going to have to be a concern if you want to naturally uh, raise new, new generations of ducklings. Even if you have a holding area. You're going to need to create a secondary holding area for your brooders. And when they start going broody, you want to separate them from your main ducks. We learned that the hard way, too. We had a, a muscovy that killed three of uh, seven babies by smashing them by accident because she was panicking because the other ducks were around. So you, and, and, and so you need an area that will basically keep her isolated and quiet and calm and move your broodies over there. And you can have multiple broodies together. They get along great. They really are great co-parents. And if you have muscovies and, and regular ducks, doesn't matter. They all get along with that whole parenting detail. But you want to confine those babies anywhere where you have that much water uh, to at least three to four weeks of age. Uh, because when they're, you know, when they're born, they're a couple ounces. They're, they're about as big as like uh, a tangerine. And a, a relatively small turtle can just come up and grab them by the, the leg, and they'll do it. I mean, I've been places, you see a little flotilla of babies, and kids are like at a park feeding them, and all you hear is bloop, bloop, bloop. And it's, it, it's, it's impossible to get the kind of reproduction you'd be looking for for meat production. But if you did that, even without a main holding area, just collecting your brooding mothers and giving them an isolated area to get through that period, that incubation period, so to speak, Uh, and, and adolescent period with the ducks, you could have meat harvest that you could just selectively harvest. So it all depends on what you want to do. So it's a long answer, but I wanted to be complete about it and, and give everybody listening lots to think about if you're going to get into the world of ducks and you are fortunate to have lots of water. This next one comes from Neil, and, uh, Neil in Tennessee. And it's interesting. It says, this reminds me of the movie Demolition Man when someone curses and an ATM spits out a swear fine. Um, but unlike swearing, I, I think this actually is a problem. This is on bullying. It says, Bill would fine Oklahoma students $50 for bullying. Um, it says, a new anti-bullying proposal, under a new anti-bullying proposal in Oklahoma, would fine students $50 for breaking its rules. Hitting bullies in the pocketbook is a different approach from suspending or expelling them. Bullies would also have to seek counseling or do community work. Um... Advocates said the idea behind the new proposal is to keep parents involved and their kids in class. Um, so here's my thing. Is, is this probably the state doing something that's so subjective that there's no alternative other than for this to become something that's abused? And I think the answer is yes. And this is what I mean by this. So you can actually end up with this being a reverse thing where – a bully. See, bullies are smart about how they pick their victims. They want to pick people that are weaker than them, that they think they can get away with bullying and things like that. So there was an example of this where a kid in New Jersey was twirling a pencil, like you just twirl a pencil, and this kid that had been bullying him said, look, he's making gun signs. The teacher freaks out about it. The kid is, is forced to have 
uh, counseling sessions because they, they perceived him as a, as a, a threat because he twirled a pencil and that meant he was threatening to shoot somebody. Not even pointing, I mean, just twirling a pencil. And I can see bullies using this kind of a law to claim the kid that's actually been bullied is the bully, right? So I, I don't know that I trust the state with this. There's not much I trust the state with. But I'm going to put that on the shelf. Whether or not finding bullies is a, is a, a proactive and good solution, I don't know. I do th think this is the case. If your 15-year-old gets a $50 fine, you're probably paying it. Now, you might have to take it back out of them through making them do work or docking their allowance or whatever. But most 15-year-old kids don't just have 50 bucks sitting around that they can pull out and, and spend. And if they do, it's probably your money anyway. So what it does is it finds the parent through the child. So in some instances, that may make parents more involved. But I think a lot of parents aren't involved, period, and they're not going to be. And all they're going to end up doing is a lot of these kids that are bullied is because their parents are pieces of shit that are, are physically abusive with their kids. And so Johnny comes home. He got in trouble for bullying. Dad's bullying Johnny all the time. Johnny gets a $50 fine. Dad finds out about it, smacks the crap out of Johnny. The cycle of violence continues, right? I think that's one of the very realistic uh, unintended consequences that can come from this. But this is what I have to say about this. I think bullying is a serious problem, and it's more a problem today than when I was a kid. I, I absolutely believe that. And I think that those of you that say things like it's just part of growing up, I don't know what reality you're coming from. I don't know what reality you're freaking coming from. It, even if it is, that doesn't mean it should be. That doesn't mean that it's beneficial. That doesn't mean that it, that it helps anybody. And here's the other stupid thing that adults constantly say. Well, the kids need to learn to stand up to bullies. Okay, here's, here's the first thing. Number one, when a kid gets bullied, even if he's a relatively tough kid that can fight, the guy that bullies him is always bigger, or the girl that bullies her is always bigger. Nobody's stupid enough as a bully to try to bully somebody that they know can stand up to them. And no matter how tough you are, there's someone tougher than you. So when you people say stuff like that, what I want to say to a lot of you is, what if I was bullying you and there was nobody to stop it? Right? And some of you are bigger than me. Well, what if I just went and found somebody? What if I got my buddy Valerie Asinoff from the KGB to bully your ass? What are you going to do about it? Stand up to him? You get your clock cleaned over and over and over again. The other thing about bullies, they travel in packs. We had these, these sitcoms in the 80s where kids would finally stand up to their bully and pop them in the face or whatever. And everybody has Christmas Story, one of my favorite movies, will be out you know, on Christmas Day, 24 hours of it, where the kid snaps out and beats the hell out of the bully. But the thing is, that's not usually how bullies operate. It's not a bully. What happens is a group singles out a kid, and they don't just bully them physically, they harass them and they make their lives miserable. And this is actually an important issue to me, because it's something I discovered later in life to realize how bad this is. And I've watched a lot of these, like these kids, like uh, the, the, the Columbine shooters, these kids were bullied every day of their life, and it's what made them snap. We have kids that are in, in serious pain, and sometimes they dole it back out in ways that are horrific. And we have to ask ourselves, what kind of society creates this? And it's another reason to do away with the public education system in the model that we're in. Even if you think public ed's a good idea, our kids could be learning at home on tablets and computers and be immune to this. They could be in groups of voluntary association without bullying. And I'm not talking about kids picking on each other and stuff like that. That's not what I'm talking about. 
I'm not talking about like when you're on the football team and there's one guy that kind of gets picked on by the rest of the team, but the rest of the team would cling the clock of anybody from outside the group to mess with them. I'm not talking about guys being guys messing. I'm talking about these 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 little bitches and little pricks that single out a kid and they 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 just destroy their life and nobody does anything. And and I've tried to think of what could be done. Now when I was in school, I'll tell you what was done. There was bullying and there was kids picking on each other, but there was a limit. There was a limit and there was a self-policing component to the limit. And there were kids that were, you know, the bigger kids, the tougher kids that really didn't get involved in any of it. And when you saw it happen to somebody, yeah, that's okay, that's okay. That's, okay, that's too much. We're going to you're done. You're done. Leave them alone. But no, don't say another word. Leave them alone. You know, there'd be you and five of your buddies with these one or two pricks that were on a kid. Just go. You're done. Those are your best friends. I don't even know them. I don't care. You're done. And don't let me see it again. Okay, now, that did work to a large degree. But that's not even... Now what happens is kids that take that proactive approach, they're punished. The kid that's being bullied when he finally snaps and stands up for himself, he's punished. What do we do about this problem? Again, I think ending the majority of classroom-based public education and using the technology that we have and going to co-ops and school groups and voluntary association of our children and not cramming 40 kids in every classroom and having a kid go from classroom to classroom to classroom and have to interact with 200 other kids on a game. It's real life. No, it's not. That's not how work works. There's nothing real life about this. You people that say it's real life and learning social skills, what? It's the social skills for prison? I mean, some of you, you have a mental defect here. And it's not your fault. Society has conditioned you to believe it. And most of you that think this way is a couple different things. One, you were never bullied. Or well, I was bullied, but it was like, okay, like one kid picked on you here and there or something, right? You know, or the girl that liked you pinched you. I don't know, okay? Or you were the bully and you don't even know you were a bully, right? Or whatever bullying you saw was mild and you were on both ends of it, right? But you don't have any idea what's going on today. Because I want you to, for those of you to say this is social skills in real life and you just have to learn to deal with it and shit, let me, let me explain it to you this way. Let's say you and I work in an office together and I just decide I don't like you. So at lunchtime you go in the break room to have lunch and I go over and I take your milk. And you say, give me my milk back. And I say, no. Right? And then, then I just walk away with your milk. And I'm bigger than you and I'm stronger than you so there's nothing you can do about it. And if you, if you were to go, now, if this happens to work, you go to HR, I get called in for counseling, this, you know, I lost my job because there's something mentally wrong with me, right? But no, if you go, if you go to authority in school, I might get in trouble, but not really. I'm certainly not going to get expelled for taking your milk, right? The school has almost no authority to do anything to me anymore anyway. And all I'm going to do is make your life more miserable. So let's say that happened in work. I get a counseling session from AR, they don't fire me, right? And, I, and I, I get you in the back of the, the office, and I push you up against the wall and say, you don't ever do that again. I smack you like a little bitch. I'm going to jail. I'm going to jail. I'm definitely fired. I'm probably getting sued. And it doesn't happen because that's the result. But in school, we act like this is just normal. This is just okay. So I'd like to hear creative ideas from this audience because this is a, an issue. Darty and I have talked about this issue. We've talked about setting up some kind of organization, some kind of way to help fight this. And I've seen people do it, but I don't think it works. I don't think it works. To me, 
and, and, and all of these like public service announcements and crap and advertising, doesn't work for this stuff. But somehow, what has to be gotten across to our youth is this isn't cool. This isn't cool. And it should not be tolerated. And our school systems, if they're going to exist, when children police this themselves, if you're going to say it's part of growing up, then let that happen. Because let me tell you the other thing. Let's imagine there was a whole group of adults engaged in any kind of an activity. And, and, and a couple guys just pick out another guy that they don't like and they start messing with him. What is the rest of the group going to do? Just sit there and let it happen? Like it's like it's back in school days or something? Or are adults going to go, dude, what the hell is wrong with you? And if the guy persists, the best thing that can happen is getting thrown out of the activity, right? The worst thing that's going to happen is going to get his ass kicked. He's going to get his ass handed to him because all the other adults in this adult situation are going to go, this is not, this is not okay. Leave him alone. I'm, you can't make me. Well, okay. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna have you leave now. I'm not leaving. Okay, you can go easy or hard, right? But that can't happen in these environments, and I'm not sure that it should, at least all the time. But I'll tell you a real quick story about how this can be policed for a kid that did it not that long ago, and you know CPS wasn't called, Department of Homeland Security didn't come in for a terrorist threat, the school wasn't shut down on lockdown. My best friend Brad from the Army had a little brother who at 14 was 260 pounds. And he was carrying a bit of fat, but he was just big. He was freshman on the freshman football team, was a lineman, he was just big. He was like at 14, this kid was taller than I am now. He was like six feet. And even though he had some gut fat, he was just big kid, 14 years old. And... One day, one another kid in the school sees a girl with a candy bar and takes it away from her and starts teasing her with it and teasing her about her hair and other shit and just making fun of her and, and, and like holding it up. You know, that thing that kids do to each other where you, you, like, you hold it up and make them jump for it, pull it back. And, oh, you don't really want it, that kind of thing. And the little girl starts crying. So Josh grabs the kid by the shirt. Okay, now this is a guy bigger than me today at 14. The other kid's 14. Grabs the guy by the shirt picks him up off the ground, slams his back into the wall, and says, give it back to her, you don't make girls cry. It was done. It was over. That was real. And while this problem's gotten worse, today, that kid would have been punished for his actions. Where what he should have been done is told, good job, man. Good job. But then there has to be a balance to that. How far do you let that go before you intervene? I don't know. My, like my coaches in high school, they seem to be pretty good about it. I remember we didn't have a lot of fights in school. And if they did happen, they probably happened in gym. And this was, our, our, we had a coach named Coach Steidel, and this was his thing. If two guys were going to get into it, they're playing scurry hockey or something, they're going to get into it. So to get into it, you get to the point where one guy clearly has the advantage. Okay, break it up. All right? It's done. Shake hands. Go play. Back to the game. Is it over? Because if it's not over, you can go to the dean. If it's over now, then we're done. And you know what? It got out of the system. It was done. No one ever really got hurt. You know, no one was jumped by a gang. Today, we got a big problem here, guys. And I wish I could tell you, I know a lot of solutions. The only solution I know is to stop this lunacy of cramming a thousand people that don't want to be together in a building together every day. And while I think that's the future, it's not now. So what do we do until then? Love to hear your ideas on this.
Time for another edition of Jack Was Right, and this is another one of those where I'm right, and I go, damn it, I don't want to be right. So I've been saying that what you what you have being done right now, what's been kind of float tested a bunch of times and we're headed for eventually, is what will effectively be a Social Security 2.0. Government mandatory, uh, mandated uh, retirement accounts. And instead of privatizing a piece of Social Security, giving people control over their money, what they'll do is create an additional program. They'll also mandate, and the government will have their grubby little fingers all over it. And what will make it Social Security 2.0 is that not only will be it mandated, even if you want to and you have to opt out of it, if they let you opt out of it, I think that they'll try it without opt-out, and maybe they'll put opt-out into it, kind of like my RA is now and stuff. And that was a first salvo at getting this done. But in the end, what they want is no opt-out whatsoever. And that you will have a certain amount of your paycheck taken, and an employer will probably have to put in a certain amount. It's like a return to the pension program, but it'll be government uh, overseen and government controlled. I do think there may be some level of flexibility of investments. So this sounds like a 401k with just mandated, but this is to replace 401ks or push them aside. The article, which I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's huge here, is called Pushing Aside 401ks for Mandatory Savings Plans. Let me read you a few excerpts of it. Tony James and Teresa Guradului are unlikely allies. He's president of Blackstone, a giant private equity firm. And she's a labor economist who has been long advocating replacing 401ks with universal federally managed saving plans. This is interesting. Blackstone's not new to this. They, they've made a run in California. I've covered them in the past. They're a huge private equity firm, and they want to be the guys to control all of this money. It'll be like a, a single-payer system in the retirement. That's what Social Security is. Yeah, but this will be different. This will be total fascism. Right? Instead of you giving the money to the government who then you know, puts it into the treasury and it goes through that and it gets siphoned off by the Federal Reserve, this will be direct fascism. The government will make your money go into a box which will immediately be put in the hands of a private corporation who will become the single largest manager of equities on the planet. And with a guaranteed commitment to a certain amount of money going in there, a false upward pressure on whatever funds or bonds or whatever is in there. Okay, So... The, the, the potential here is to make trillions of dollars for this company over time. And for the government to get its own comeuppance. Because the government's doing this just because they're concerned that you're not saving enough money, right? Wrong. Because this is how these programs are going to work. If you don't take an active role in them and you're just automatically enrolled, all your money's going to go into federal government bonds. So that services government debt to the, to the tune of, of billions and billions of dollars. Um, a little bit more from the article. These, these same people. But the two have teamed up to push what they're calling guaranteed retirement accounts, a government-sponsored plan that would require participation and contributions from any employer without its own 401k. They both view the 401k defined contribution retirement system as a faulty experiment that covers too few workers, generates inadequate savings, and replaces too little income in retirement. There really is no alternative, Mr. James argues. It needs to be mandated. These people are status. And they're status for different reasons. She's a liberal statist, and he's a conservative statist. He wants this mandate so he can make lots of money. She wants this mandate because she wants to tell other people how to live their lives and control their lives. Because she wants to be generous with other people's money. That That's how this works. Um, but let me read for me toward the end of this article a couple little excerpts that really tell you what we're on. 
Um, we don't believe an employer mandate is going to move the needle, said Lisa Berber, Managing Director, Associate General Counsel at the Securities Industry and Financial Markets Association. Mandatory savings are also viewed with trepidation by some progressive poly advocates. They would prefer to expand Social Security and worry that a political deal to create mandatory savings plan could be coupled with higher retirement ages and other Social Security benefit cuts. The first and best solution is to expand Social Security, said Nancy Altman, president of Social Security Works, an advocacy group. As long as expanding Social Security is the first step, improving employer-based supplemental retirement plans is a reasonable second step. Hold on. Right now, almost 15% of your money goes to Social Security so you can retire at the poverty level. Yay! Anyway, uh, the White House is on record as supporting mandatory savings plans, albeit more modest one than guaranteed account idea. And Mr. James, the the private equity firm guy, says he is optimistic the Republican support can be found in the future. Quote, I think we can sell it because it's not a tax, end quote, he said. When government mandates that your money is taken from you, it's a tax. We found that out with Obamacare. Back to it, though. Quote, the GOP does not like the idea, the, the GOP does like the idea of people taking responsibility for themselves and not relying on the government, end quote. So since the Republicans supposedly like people taking care of themselves, it'll be easy to sell them on the idea of government making them do it. That's, that's what that, that's the Jack Spiergo non-bullshit term. Now, the deeper no-bullshit. Mr. James believes that there's enough lobbying money to get this shit done that they can buy enough Republican votes to get this shit done. And that they can give the Republicans a soft marketing message to sell it to you. They have no concerns about selling it to the Congress and the Senate. They know exactly how to do that. These scumbags have been selling stuff to our Senate and our Congress for years. Okay, it's the House and the Senate. I know somebody wants to be you know, an asshole like, it's not magazine and clip, it's one or the other. Whatever. You know what I'm saying. Okay? That's what they're really saying. We can sell this to the people so that when we couple it with money put into the coffers of your elected officials, they'll have enough spine to go ahead and do it and tell you it's for your own benefit. Oh, and they will, because they'll tell you how great it'll be for you, how much more money you're going to have for your retirement, and they probably will pop an opt-out percentage in there. But all this is is Social Security 2.0. A whole assload of this money is going to go into government bond debt. In fact, it'll come with a mandate. It'll be something like this. Based on your wages, there'll be a percent, there'll be a, a, a contribution amount that has to be made. To sell it to you, they will probably couple it with a mandate that employers provide a certain amount. It'll be something very small at first, 2%, 1%, 3%, somewhere in that range. And they'll say, well, look, look, if you're paying a guy 500 bucks a week, right, you can afford 15 bucks in his match, right? And he can afford 15 bucks. So we're just going to mandate this. So 3%, something like that, right? Okay. So it, 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 people will adjust to this. But then what they'll say is, we, well, we, want, we have to make sure that when retirement age comes, that there's a certain amount of money guaranteed. So they'll come up with a government bond just for this. And unlike those dangerous fluctuating bonds where the interest rates come, they'll probably come up with a bond just for this at a guaranteed return which is what Social Security is supposed to be. And what it'll basically say is, what's well, 4% or something like that, or, or 3% or something like that. So, And then they'll say, well, at least 60% of the money has to go in here. Now, while Mr. James won't be overwhelmedly happily about that, right? they'll have the management of this thing 
or maybe the Golden Sachs will get the management of that, right? And, 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 and they'll make a ton of money just off managing that money, which means to do nothing. But the balance of it will be at least eligible for private equity investment, okay? And then these scumbags will have the complete control and management. That's what these guys are trying to do. And even if one company doesn't get it, what they're trying to do is angle it so there's a giant slush fund. And what they'll have is certain rules and regulations of which companies qualify as managers because we've got to protect your money. And there'll be a very small group of companies that will have their own mint because they'll just charge a management fee for this money. And it'll be very limited as to where this money can go. It won't be like you can put like a 401k where you got 20 different stock funds, right? And it's not going to be like an IRA where you got you can buy anything you want. You can buy gold ETFs if you want. No, no, no. We have to protect this. This is for your retirement. We have to make sure this is safe. They may even put it all into government securities. They may do 100% and then pay crooks like this to manage it, to protect it, or to, to take a certain portion of it and invest it as a hedge or whatever. They'll come up with some, but in the end, this is what's going to happen. Everybody working in America is going to have a certain amount of their money stolen. Every employer is going to have a certain burden placed on top of them. It's going to come from the government, and they'll use this if they can to get rid of 401ks. They won't take your 401 Don't go freaking out and cashing your 401k and paying a penalty. Just relax. What they'll do is they'll grandfather the 401k program. or Because what they're saying right now is if you don't have one. Or they'll sell this as being better. They'll make 401k so expensive, employers will just go, I can do this one for basically nothing. So what will happen is the employer, even though they have to make a contribution, will say, it costs me less money to administer this for my employees, just like healthcare situation with pushing employees into the marketplace, et cetera, for smaller employees, only this will go in reverse. The bigger the company, the more this will be true. And, and they'll just, they'll just kind of push them out. And don't be surprised if eventually, if eventually... They go after IRAs, too. And I don't mean the direct attack. That's years down the line before they do that. I mean, like, just like, well, you know, all this does is favor more affluent investors who don't really need a tax break. So with this new program, you can just participate in that. And let's get rid of You can still save and invest all your money you want, but we're not giving you a tax break for it. See, the government gave you a tax break with an IRA, whether it's, it's immediate or long-term, whether it's Roth or conventional. They want to get rid of all those programs. They don't like them. They want more control. They want your money. They want all of the money back because they think it's their money. Your government thinks your money is their money, and you're not smart enough to be trusted with it. But here you go, guys. You can read this whole article if you want to. They're coming after your money, and they're going to make it sound really good, and they're going to make it sound like it's in your best interest because that's what the state does. What really gets me, though, out of this whole article, the one line from this uh, Tony James scumbag, there really is no alternative. It needs to be mandated. 300 million plus people live in this country. There is innovation that, that staggers the mind in what human beings have been able to do. Inside and outside of government, honestly. Inside and outside of the university system, honestly. It, 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 is, it is staggering. The innovation com the component and capability of the human mind. But in this case... We just can't figure out any other way. It has to be this one thing that just happens to benefit me and the people paying me in a huge way. But there really is no alternative. That's not me peeing in your boot. It's just rain. 
Don't worry about it. It'll dry up. Let's take another one. In spite of a three-hour show on cider and mead-making, the questions are still coming. Uh, I says, Jack, I'm just stuck on one thing. Is there a reason why my cider needs to go in the fridge? Can I not store it in the cupboard like other alcoholic beverages? Thanks. I don't know when I ever said your cider had to go in the refrigerator. Um, it depends on what you want. If you want cold cider, that's a good place for it. If you want a cold crash, which is where we, we put the cider into the refrigerator to cause the yeast to, to drop out faster and clear better, uh, then you would do that. But there's no reason your cider ever has to go into the refrigerator. The whole concept of making alcoholic beverages precedes refrigeration. It's one of the big things about it. The alcohol and acidity levels in fermented beverages uh, act as a preservative. So I don't even know really where that question comes from, but I do want to answer it because if anybody got the impression from all of the stuff that I've done on small batch meat and cider making that you have to refrigerate it at any time, there's, there's really nothing to that. There's a lot of things that can be done with refrigeration. So a lot of yeast will just pretty much go to bed at 50 degrees. So if I had a cider and I tasted it and I didn't want to back sweeten it, I wanted to drink it as a still cider. And it, it, it wasn't completely fermented down. There was some residual sweetness I wanted to preserve. I could put that in the refrigerator, crash that yeast, siphon it into another container off of that yeast, and put it back in the refrigerator. And it might ferment a little tiny bit, but eventually I'll just basically completely cold crash that yeast and leave that, that, that cider nice and clean with a little residual sweetness. So there's a lot of things we can do with refrigeration. But it's, it's absolutely, absolutely not necessary. Uh, now, if you have non-preserved apple juice or cider that hasn't been fermented, that you want to preserve as apple juice, especially if, you know, if it's been pasteurized or whatever, once it's been opened, you've got to refrigerate that. It'll start fermenting all by itself. And it might lactobacillus ferment as well as yeast ferment, and you might get something really gnarly. So that's a different thing altogether. But when you make alcohol whether it's beer, mead, wine, whatever, there's no need to refrigerate it ever, other than I think most most fruit ciders taste better cold than they do at room temperature, where, you know, red wines are fine at room temperature. I have had a blackberry mead. I'm working on one right now. But I had a blackberry mead uh, one time that was fantastic, very, very dry, well attenuated, tasted more like a Cabernet Sauvignon than it, than it made you think of a blackberry mead. And it was fantastic at room temperature. Most other things, though, I like cold. Carbonation as well. Um, when you do force carbonating with a kegerator or something like that, it, it, the, the liquid when chilled will take much more CO2 gas into it and it'll, it'll carbonate better for you. Conversely, when you bottle condition and carbonate, if you don't give it enough time and put it in the refrigerator, you can shut that down and end up undercarbonated. So I hope that answers your question there. And this was from Danny. Here's another question that I found interesting. It says, uh, Never even really thought about this much before. What is the difference? What is the effective, useful difference between rubbing alcohols or different alcohol contents? I've purchased 50, 70, and 91 percent. I'd like to have a stock of first aid antiseptics, especially when they go on sale at Wally World. It would be nice to know the difference between the three beyond the obvious. Thanks, Jack, Richard, and Houston area. Um, Generally speaking, the, the difference is only how much water was added and because of that, what the cost is. So if you look at a bottle of 50% isopropyl alcohol compared to 91%, the 91% costs more. And 
in general, the higher alcohol level will evaporate faster uh, and is therefore, since it evaporates faster, it sticks around a little bit less time. And yes, the alcohol evaporates faster than the water, but when all things mixed together, 70% will stay in contact with the whatever you put it on longer, but the 91% will be more effective in uh, basically killing any bacteria or any organisms on there that you want. Um, looking it up, a lot of people use like 70% to clean keyboards and stuff like that, 91% more topically. Um, it's also true that the lower the, per, the percentage of alcohol, the less flammable risk there is. So if you're, you know, if you were wiping out a keyboard, which technically is electronic, 91%, I don't think you're going to get a fire started, but I guess it's more likely. 50%, I've never, re I didn't even really know such a thing existed until this email. I checked it out, and yeah, there is. So I, I would think it's just more of the same. But all you're looking at is alcohol and distilled water. Now remember, uh, isopropyl alcohol, these medicinal alcohols are highly poisonous. These are not for consumption ever. Uh, you cannot use them for that. I know I shouldn't have to say that, but I feel like I do. But if anybody knows anything beyond what I just said about this particular question, I'd love to hear about it in the show notes, and maybe I can do it and follow up in the new year. Um, but, but that's, you know, I almost kicked this to Dr. Bones, and I thought it's just too simple to really bother one of the expert council members with. It's just a percentage of alcohol. And due to that, this is what I would say. I see no reason to buy anything except the highest percentage alcohol. It takes up the least amount of space, and if for any reason you ever really wanted to use a, a lighter solution, you just add water to it. So you can just dilute it by enough to get it down. That means you can store more in a smaller area. Again, I think the flammability issue is probably the biggest concern. There wasn't much written up about it. There was a lot of opinions by people asking the same question in forums and stuff, but there wasn't like a, a page on choosing the right isopropyl alcohol for your needs. I think it's just if you want a higher percentage, you're going to pay a little bit more money for it, but it's all pretty daggone cheap. Uh, let's take another one. Okay, this next one centers around college students and the First Amendment, which includes a lot of things, but chief among them, something college students are quick to always point out they have when they're protesting or whatever, and that is freedom of speech. And, and you would think that in our vaulted universities of intellectuals, the concept of protecting free speech Uh, it would be protected, including freedom of religion. These are the same people very upset when a conservative Christian minister doesn't want to marry a, a gay couple or what have you. Not that I would refuse to do it. Again, before anybody jumps my shit about that, I'm an ordained minister, and if two gay people want to be married and can't find somebody to do it, come on down here, I'll marry you. All right? I don't... I, I don't get the debate. I don't even want the state involved in it in the first place, but whatever. But but they, you just got to put this in context. A lot of you have probably heard this or seen the video. I'm going to play the audio from it, and I'm going to come back and give you my thoughts on it. And it's part of a very, very disturbing trend that I see with the university system. Here we go. Repealing the First Amendment because, you know, we don't want things to happen like microaggressions. Our campuses across the country are convulsing with free speech debates. It is not about creating an intellectual speech. It is not. Do you understand? You need to get out. I actually don't. All right. Hey, who wants to help me get this corner out of here? I need to bustle over here. 
Yale University has always been an incubator for some of the best and brightest America has to offer. Yale is the alma mater of no less than five presidents and ten Supreme Court justices. I think it's going to take Yaleys to bring some sanity to this very serious debate. What we're calling for is a petition to repeal the First Amendment. Just get rid of it. Blow it up. Get rid of it. Just as a reminder, the First Amendment protects the freedom of speech, the freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, freedom of the press, and oh yeah, freedom of petition. So what we're calling for is to repeal the First Amendment. I, I think this is fantastic. Okay. I absolutely agree. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Love it. Thank you. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll sign it for you guys. Right, I appreciate it. I, I appreciate what you're trying to do. I think the Constitution should be one big safe space, mm -hmm. right? Her, uh, her people's feelings yeah, no. is not, should not be protected no, speech. Yeah, I totally agree with where you're at. Because I think it's a living, breathing document, the Constitution. Yeah, I It agree. was literally not written, written in stone. Yeah. And the guys who wrote it, they were slave owners. Yeah, that's true. What do they know about how we live today? So we want to change it. Because you shouldn't be exposed to things you don't want to hear, yeah. you know? That's not right. But, I mean, like, making fun of people is just not cool. Right. It should be protected. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Great. I appreciate that. Because, you know what? Microaggressions should not be protected. And making fun of people is not cool. And, you know, it sucks. Okay. I mean, thank you. Thank, thank you very much. Interesting. It's a good for you. That's great. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Good. Well, take care. I like what you're doing. Okay. Um, I, I like it. It's really awesome. Thanks, man. Yeah. I appreciate but, it. Thank you, sir. Okay, before we get into the actual issue at hand, the First Amendment, I would like to give you a little context to the very beginning if you don't know where these uh, the first two uh, crazy, hysterical female voices came from. Um, the one saying, it's not about creating intellectual space. Do you understand that? This is from Princeton University. I'm going to put a link to both of these stories up for you as well as to this video. And uh, what she was upset about is the wife of a, of a professor who lives on campus sent out an email to the students about Halloween and said, if you see somebody wearing a, a Halloween costume that you find offensive, it would be probably best that either you just didn't pay attention to them or if you felt the discussion was necessary, that you spoke to them directly rather than reporting it to authority to solve the problem for you since you are all adults now. That's what she was upset about. The other one was a girl that was doing a protest, kind of like an Occupy-style protest on a college campus with tents and all, about freedom of speech. She was upset because a reporter was videoing it. The one that says, get me some muscle. I'll put links to both of those, just so you can understand the context of those. Now, this is what I want to say before I proceed with this discussion. I have no doubt that the person that did this piece wanted to present this angle, that they went there looking to do it, okay? I have no doubt that the people that they, they played audio of agreeing to sign it were the worst-case scenarios of the people that signed it. The, the, the dumbest morons they could find were the ones that they featured. I, I have no doubt about that. And this is what would commonly be called by people that want to poo-poo it a hit piece. However... I would say that if you go onto the campus of Yale University, one of the most esteemed universities 
on the planet where people are supposed to be highly intellectual thinkers. And as students, to repeal the First Amendment, you should be shocked if you find one. One should be shocking, not ghastly shocking. Five should be, there's something inherently wrong with what's going on here. This gentleman walked around and asked for signatures for a grand total of about 60 minutes. He collected 50 signatures. 50 students of Yale University signed a petition asking to repeal the First Amendment. Now, I'm going to also temper this with a little bit of reality. I would bet there's there's people that walk by, and anybody that asks them to sign a petition, they just sign it, they don't even think about it. Right? They don't even care. They're just, ah, oh, this guy, petition guy. And they don't really listen. They don't really pay attention. They don't really know what they're doing. 50 people signing a petition to repeal the First Amendment of the United States Constitution in about an hour at one of the highest esteemed Ivy League universities that, that, that exists is unfathomable to me. And the discussion you hear him having, like I don't think microaggressions should be, uh, uh, you know, protected. These, these kids really think this way, and, and, and the irony is palpable. The demands out asking people to sign a petition to repeal the amendment that protects the right to petition, it protects freedom of speech, freedom of religion, etc. People, when they hear the First Amendment, they always think of freedom of speech. They don't think about the other things that go along with that. It's not, it's not a one-dimensional uh, amendment just because it's the first one. Let's remind ourselves of what it says for you know just a little Civics 101 here. The text is, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or the press or the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. So, you know, all these college students who like to demonstrate all the time, they're, they're, they're willing to sign a petition that would take away their right to protest, something they, they dearly love to do. Now, okay, If you went down to like some uh, you know downtown area and just randomly selected 18-year-old nincompoops and asked them this question and they didn't know what the First Amendment completely did, okay, I get that. These are students at Yale. These are students at Yale. They do have admissions requirements there. It's not like just anybody can go to Yale. This is a systemic problem. And I know somebody, Jack, is an anarchist. You don't want government. I don't want government doing anything. So until we have a society where that can actually happen, I am very much for anything and everything that can be used to impede government from doing something. What I would love to have is some of these kids that were in this video, and they all have their face blurred out so no one can sue anybody. I'd love to hear from one of these kids that signed this petition. I'd like to actually ask you, without beating you up, what was going through your head? Did you really know what you were being asked to do? And if so, would you do it again? And if so, how would you defend that? And what do you think the results of repealing the First Amendment would be? What do you think they would be? Do, do you think that you would still be able to, to, to petition for grievances from your government? 
And, and, and this is what people will say with things like that. Well, I don't think the government would do that. Then they should have no problem with the amendment that prevents it. But then they say, but, but because of that amendment, we can't do common sense legislation. That There's no such thing. When you start impeding the ability of people to speak freely, to speak their mind, to practice their religion, to have a free press, to peaceably assemble, to petition their government for grievances, you, you've lost all concept of common sense. This is actually why there were some people that opposed the Bill of Rights. Because what they said was, the Constitution gives the government no power to do these things. And the federal Constitution specifically gives the government no power to do something, they don't have the ability to do it. And since the Constitution doesn't apply to the states, and by the way, until it was incorporated by the Supreme Court over a hundred-year period, the Constitution of the United States did not apply to the states, only to the federal government, except where the states were specifically mentioned and called out. Okay, So the First Amendment of the Constitution did not prevent Florida or Georgia or Texas or Virginia from infringing free speech until it was incorporated and seen as important enough that it should have where the states would have signed on to the Bill of Rights because they didn't want to be impeded on what they wanted to do, because all governments want to be able to do whatever the hell they want. So this was to keep the federal government out of the way of the state governments, and it was incorporated over time. And what these people said is, if we don't specifically put everything in here, by the fact that we've restricted government from doing these things, the government will say, since it doesn't say we can't do fill-in-the-blank, that means we can Because our founders weren't stupid like we've been led to believe. They weren't people that didn't think technology would evolve and other things would be there that the government could do. So to make sure that it was fully understood what the Bill of Rights were all about, they added two more amendments, the Ninth and the Tenth. The Tenth Amendment gives the states the ability to nullify certain things the federal government does. We won't get into that today. The Ninth Amendment is one of the most important amendments to the United States Constitution, and it's one that very few people are actually familiar with. It reads as follows. The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Okay. What that means is, just in case we weren't clear, we're specifically saying you can't do these other eight things. You can't. You are not allowed to do them. Okay. But if we miss something, unless you're said that you can do it, you can't still. And you can't use the Bill of Rights as an excuse to get away with it. So, unless the Constitution specifically charges government with a power, they don't have it. That's what the Ninth Amendment says. I wonder how many of these people at Yale understand that. See, here's what I actually think has happened. The, 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 the people of this nation, especially this generation of 30 and under, have been taught that the Constitution is a problem. It is a hindrance, it is a hindrance to future progress. And that we need to get it out of the way so we can do what needs to be done. Because it was written by a bunch of old white slave owners and signed off of by the same. But see, that's not exactly the case, is it? This was a document that for its time and for our time still was so well done under the concept that there would be a government that northern people who were opposed to slavery, and southern people that were for slavery, neither trusting the other, were able to come to consensus with this is the best we can do for now. And we'll make it 
in some ways, a living document through the amendment process. We will make provision that the Constitution can be amended so that these things can be worked out in time. Okay? And that doesn't require a petition to repeal an amendment. It requires a massive majority of agreement and sign on by the people. And there's different provisions for getting an amendment passed in the Constitution, but it's not like passing a law. It's far more complex, and they meant it to be that way. That gave both sides confidence that they would both be fairly represented in massive change and that the people would be as well. And people might be thinking, Jack sounds like a, like you know he's pretty hip on the Constitution right now. I appreciate the value of constitutional restriction on government. Not because I think it's the best we can do, but because it's better than nothing. And that I believe that as a people, if we're going to claim to be a constitutional republic, whether we all think that's the way we should do things or not, if that's going to be the rules, then we should follow the rules that we have for everybody, not for the chosen few to be allowed to get away with it, not willy-nilly, and we should at least know what those rules are before we start talking about mucking around and changing them. And that would be you know, a case for... How educated are these people really in our university systems? What if they were all, you know, what if this was done like the first week of school, Jack, and they just went until now to release it, and the guy made sure he went to where the freshmen were, and you really couldn't call them Yale students yet? I don't know. I think if you're a high school senior that managed to get into Yale University, you should have a fundamental grasp of the First Amendment by then. And if you don't, what does that say about our high schools? What does that say about our high schools? I don't know. I'd like to hear from anybody that would support the repeal of the First Amendment and to your justification as to why you would. And what you think would happen if we did. And why you think the world would be better for doing so. Again, I am all for removing power from government. I am not for removing roadblocks to government's power. Those are two different things. Absolutely two different things. Last but not least, I heard this on the radio when I was doing some errands. And I don't know where the information came from. But the DJ said that in all, he was turned down 15 times. 50 yeses, 15 noes. Man, I just, what is our nation turning into? Here's a great quick little email uh, from a listener named Danielle that we will go ahead and uh, finish up with today. Particularly fitting as we are in uh, lead up to Christmas week. Says, just wanted to thank you again for your thought provoking content. I spent a few weeks considering all the various things I could tell my husband I would like for Christmas. It was getting demoralizing as I realized such enduring ambivalence was a sign of how little those items would really contribute to my life. Luckily for me, I tuned into your podcast after a long hiatus and was inspired by one of your episodes to request we purchase and assemble the supplies for our family's bug out bags together. I feel a lot of relief and peace having made that decision. Okay, inspired by one of your podcasts. Oh, that was okay. I read it wrong. I was ins- I was inspired by your episode, uh, one of your episodes, for as my present that should have been in there to request that we purchase and assemble the supplies for our family's bug out bags together. I feel a lot of relief and peace having made this decision. I wanted to share this with you and thank you for bringing things, bringing us back to things uh, to what really matters. Um, now that makes me happy. That makes me happy. I mean, 
there's so much that people uh, buy as gifts at the holidays that the receiver's appreciative. They like, they, they you know, like that's and it's nice. And I'm not opposed to giving gifts. And I've got Christmas present for my wife this year because I'm not dumb, but. In, in many instances, a lot of the things that are given as gifts are thank you and whatever and used for a day or two and put on a shelf or put in the back of a cupboard and never really seen again. And it's done almost completely out of this sense of obligation to, to, to gift to others. And I think that, I, that we should be seeing more things like this. And I'm not saying this is the exact thing that everybody should be doing or whatever. I think people are better making their own decisions instead of being told what to do. But families getting together and saying, this is something that would benefit the whole family. Why don't we all contribute in some way and gift this to the, they're a whole unit of a family this year instead of worrying about exchanging gifts and reciprocity and things like that. On the other hand, I think the concept of gift giving, etc., is a wonderful thing in many ways. But it's been so commercialized at this point. It, 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 it astounds me. One of the shows I actually used to like to watch when I was a little kid, uh, and I can't say I've watched it for 25 years now, but when I was a kid I liked this show. And it probably was because I had four stations. And uh, to get one of them to come on, I had to go out and turn the antenna with a monkey wrench a little bit. So I pretty much had three, unless I felt like going outside. Um, <laughs> but it was Little House on the Prairie. And I remember there was an episode <clears throat> where they had Christmas. And they had a tree and all. And for some reason, the Christmas presents were left in the barn. And that Christmas, it snowed so much that the snow was like, you know, so, you know six, eight feet high. And they were snowed into the house. And the dad says, well, I bet Santa left the Christmas presents in the, the thing, because some of the kids are still young enough for that. you know." And so he, he puts on snowshoes, and he walks out to the barn and gets the presents and brings them in. And if I remember right, the presents were things like a little bit of candy, a cup, and an orange. And the kids were very happy about it. And I'm not saying we should go to, you know, it's probably pewter or something with lead in it, cups for our kids again, or that we need to be that Spartan. But I also feel like people that lived during that time had a much greater appreciation for the gifts that were given by others and the sacrifices necessary to give those gifts than we generally have today. And... I think that we need to all think about this a great deal, not just at Christmas time, but in general. The, the, the concept that we always have this obligation to buy things for people, I think lets us off the hook too easy many times. Where, because doing things for people generally takes more effort. It takes more work and it takes greater sacrifice. Especially when we've gotten into a point today where we have all these cheap consumer goods. There's stuff just being cranked out of factories in China. And some of the stuff that comes in, this garbage that I see merchandise on the shelves, I just think the Chinese worker that makes this must look at it and go, what is wrong with Americans? Why do they buy this crap? I mean, seriously, there's some of the stuff that's just such junk. And we perpetuate this junk in this spending cycle. And, but what I wanted to cover this for is getting back into the concept of what gifting actually 
historically did, and how some economies were actually based on gifting. Because I think it's it's an interesting thing to look at this, particularly this time of year. This uh, I learned a lot about in Toby, Toby Hemingway's book, The Permaculture City. We're, we're told that the, the historical context of the economies was in barter. I give you dried meat, you give me a sack of wheat, something like that. And that eventually that went to a monetary system because the barter was inconvenient. But if you actually dig deeper into it, while barter was common and often something that was done, it generally never ran an economy. Barter was often two groups that really didn't see each other ever again. And, and they just took the opportunity that was there. Do, do you have anything that I want, anything you want? That actually running economies that way is all but impossible. That's why money was created. So what was done to run a village or a town or, or whatever before the advent of true money or even a tribe, uh, a larger tribal unit that be, you know, predated true currency, and it was mostly gifting. If I was the knife maker or the blade maker for our village, and, and, and that was my main skill, And probably in these types of societies, everybody could do it a little bit, but I was the best at carving obsidian into a blade. And, and you needed a, a knife. Well, I just gave you one. I just gave you one. And if I needed something I didn't have, you gave it, gave it to me. Not necessarily in a single transaction, but later. It was just assumed that, that the talents were utilized for that society and that If you needed a knife, you went to the knife maker. And if you if you needed a tool, you went to the tool maker. If you needed pottery, you went to the people that made the pottery. And it was just done. And what this did was create an inability to balance a transaction. So, for instance, if you come to me right now and you say, Jack, uh, I want to buy a tube of silver. And I say, well, the current cost of silver right now is X dollars. Uh, this is how much 20 ounces is worth. Give me your money. You say, okay, fine. Here's your money. I give you your silver. We're done. Neither one of us is obligated for shit to the other ever again unless we choose to be. We have no sense of connection. Think about, look around your home right now and, and, and figure out, I bet you in, in one minute you can identify 10 items that you do have some value in that you can't remember where they came from. You don't remember maybe even how much they cost, but even if you do, you don't know who you bought them from. And if you bought them like at a retail establishment, you certainly don't know the name of the person you paid for them. For them, You don't know the name of the person that made it. And you have no sense of obligation. Uh, right now I'm looking at a bunch of books. I paid for them, they're mine. I have no sense of obligation. Uh, if I do have a sense, this is actually an interesting idea. If I do have a sense of obligation due to a book, I have it to the author, who I do know by name. But not because I have the book they wrote, because I read the book. And the value in the book makes me feel that it exceeded the cost. So now the transaction is unbalanced. Books are a perfect example. This is great. I didn't know I was going to get there. So think about it this way. This is a great, this is a true story. It predates all my prepping stuff and all. It's back in my just straight entrepreneurial days. I used to use the technology to make money with my websites called Google AdSense. You can still do this. It's nowhere near as profitable as it was during like the golden era of AdSense. AdSense is when you're on a website. You don't see this much anymore because it doesn't really pay to do it anywhere near as much anymore. But it is YouTubers use this. The ads you see on YouTube videos, a lot of times that's based on that old platform. And that that is a way to make some money if you have a million views or whatever to your videos. So... 
I would have this website about whatever, heavy equipment, I mean little mini sites, and I'd put these ads all over them. And somebody would come to that website, see the ad, and click on the ad. And maybe the person that bought that ad paid 25 cents, and Google might have given me in the good days 10 cents of that 25 cents. And I started building all these little mini sites and making a few hundred dollars a month at first is what I first my come my first level. And I got up to where I was making about a thousand dollars a month, and I was just spending a couple hours a week making a new site, putting some links up, and optimizing it, and making some money. And I heard on a podcast, one of the first podcasts I ever listened to, about a dude named Joel Com. And Joel Com had this book, AdSense Secrets, or something like that, how to make a lot of money with AdSense. And I didn't trust it. There was something about it I didn't trust. So what I did is I went to his website and looked at all the information. I couldn't really figure out what it was that was the magic in what he was doing. And But I read through all of these testimonials. You know, Joe Blow from JoeBlowsNuggets.com uh, says this is the most fantastic thing that's ever happened in my online business. So I'd look up that guy, and I'd start finding his websites and other sites he'd link to, and I just looked at his ads. And when I looked at his ads, this is what I noticed. They had made all the borders clear. Now, most of them are done that way today because Google snapped to this working. But it didn't look like ads anymore. It still said AdSense by Google, but it was in the bottom, and it was formatted. And maybe they would take it and put it in a horizontal banner and line it up with pictures. So the pictures attracted you, and it looked like content. It looked like you were just linking through. And there were even these link bars that looked like navigation bars on a website. And once I saw that, I didn't need the book. And I said, I'm going to try this. And I went through about 10 of my sites, and I made these changes. And I, and I had all my ads set up so I could track where the money was coming from. And the click-through rates quadrupled the day I did it. Now, that might still be a very low number if the site was only getting 100 visits a day, but the click-through rates, the actual number of people that clicked on the ads, skyrocketed. The first month I used those techniques, the month before I had made about 1200 bucks. The next month, in, in AdSense revenue, I made $3,800. The book, at the time, was $99. I didn't need the book. I didn't buy it to see if there were some things I didn't know. I had it all worked out. I bought the book. I bought the book. In an attempt to at least symbolically balance the transaction, I received so much value, so fast, from this man's information. And even though I had worked it out myself, had I not heard that podcast, heard him talk about it, heard what it does, believed it enough to at least check it out, gone and done it, and implemented it, I would not have ever done so. And up until AdSense kind of went the way of the dodo bird as being something really valid, I made a lot of money using those techniques. Joel's still selling that stuff. I don't think it works. I know that the platform doesn't work like it used to. I don't know if it's worth anywhere near what it was worth back then. It probably isn't. But if that guy ever really needed something, I'd throw a little bit his way because it's still unbalanced. It'll never balance. It can't balance. The value of what I was given, because it wasn't just that. So what that did is that freed me up making enough money to really start exploiting all the websites I'd built up to them that were affiliate sites and things like that. And that actually led to this. That led to a whole path of switching completely from a sales career to a marketing career, becoming an expert at the Internet, which led me to a client that led me to a... There's no way I can ever pay back Joel Calm the value of what was given to me by that book 
It did take my initiative and work and intelligence and aptitude, but that put that, and I, it doesn't mean I would have found another path to the same place, but it wouldn't have been this way and it wouldn't have been this fast. This is how economies used to run. So I give you the knife, you don't give me anything because you don't have anything and I don't need anything you have right now. Maybe you're the guy that does the roofs for the huts, that you do the thatching. But I don't need it. My roof's thatched. It's good. Okay? But then what happens is, so, you know, I need something like, um, I don't know, maybe I need um, cordage to attach my blades to, to handles. And I don't have time to make cordage. And there's people in the village that make cordage. So it's assumed because it's reality that I'm giving to. So then they just bring me cordage to make my knives. And when they need a knife, I just finish the knife and hand it back to them. But not because they gave me the cordage, because that's what... And the, the equation never balanced. Now, do I think it's practical that we can run a global economy of billions of people that way today? Absolutely not. I, I do not. We need some sort of monetary unit of exchange to make that happen. But it, it, it's important that we acknowledge that that's the truest form of voluntary association. And then we say to ourselves, how can we, not like government, but how can we, how can we encourage that? And this is why I love Bitcoin-like technology. I'm not going to just say Bitcoin, but anything like that, these systems of accounting, I think it's very, very possible that we're going to lead into a world someday where a person is going to have a value to others that's based on a true neutral projection system. And it makes me realize how scary that could get if it gets into the wrong hands. There's there's another video that I'm not going to get deep into today. I put it out on Facebook uh, this weekend. I'll put a link in the show notes today. It talks about this new system in China that rates through your social media activity how good of a citizen you are. And it, it gives you points when you do good things as far as the government's concerned. And it takes away points when you do things it doesn't like. And... If your friends are doing good things, your score goes up. And if your friends are doing you know bad things like complaining about the government or things like that, their score goes down and yours gets dragged down a little bit. So you start and then you can look at all your friends and see who's dragging you down and disassociate with them. And the way that could be used to steer a society when government's making the choice is horrific. On the other hand, if the system actually makes the choice based on feedback and interactions of the total group. Then what can happen is you can have two people with massively high value points added on their score, if you want to call it that, that think and act completely differently. Because one may be very much like me, and another person may be very much like your know, liberal college student. But if their interactions with others of their own choosing resulted in, in, in a pleasing reaction. Because this wouldn't be based so much on your opinion. Do you do what you say you're going to do? Do you deliver what you promised? Can I trust you? That's what this is really about, creating a trust value in people. So that whatever unit they were spending actually has more value due to the trust that goes along with it. That can't work. That's exactly how it works. That's why the dollar was the global currency. Because it was most trusted. The trust made the dollar worth more than it really was worth. That's why anybody in the world would take the dollar. 
And we could take that, and if you do that to a point where it becomes part of a group intelligence, and it remains private and independent and out of the control of others, it could be a great thing to advance society forward. But if government has it, it can be used to completely control a society. And, and we're getting to a place where there's more and more technologies like this. And so what I want to finish up with, it is kind of a deep subject for this time of year, but it's something we need to start thinking about. Technology is advancing to a place where that's going to become more and more the case. Each new advancement now can either be used to further liberate society or further imprison it. And the prison, the dystopian future, won't look like the movie 1984. It, it really won't. It would look a lot more like the second version of the movie Total Recall. Take away the whole tunnel getting through the planet and only two places left people can live. But if you watch that movie, the general day-to-day -day activities of people didn't look that much different than your own. Or even the first version of Total Recall. Like, all of the things that really were nefarious were hidden away. Or The Matrix, the classic movie that, that, that explains that. that. That if you want to enslave a society, it's best for them to believe themselves to be free and to be generally happy and content. You want people to be miserable if you don't want to happy. No. There's a difference between happy and contentment, being happy and content, because you've been led to believe that what you have should make you happy and content, and actually being able to pursue the things that will make you happy and contented, and have happiness and contentment based on your ability to succeed in doing so, right? Or even because you were free to, to try. Because this is why we have people killing themselves today, quickly and slowly. We have people drinking themselves to death over 20, 30, 40 years. And we have people putting guns to their heads or pills in their mouth and killing themselves quickly. And then we look at their lives and we say, why? Take a good job? Take a good family? Doesn't make any sense. You know, they weren't living on Skid Row or whatever. Why did they kill themselves? We have young children. When I say children, I mean 18 to 25. Suicide rates higher than they've ever been in history. Parents going, I don't understand. Well, if you tell somebody they're super and perfect their whole lives, and they find out that they're not, and they've been lied to, they don't even believe that the really genuine, good, beautiful things they've done matter. They feel like shit. They feel like they're never going to accomplish anything. What's the point? And they seek refuge in, in, in behavior that's detrimental to their lives or in things that actually end their lives. And nothing could be more indicative of the consequences of that than a society where every year people feel a compulsion to go out and spend billions and billions of dollars on items they know will never truly be appreciated or used in the name of a social convention. When the greatest gift we can give each other often is being there for each other, taking care of each other, and actually doing things for each other. Again, I don't want to poo-poo gift-giving. I, I appreciate when I'm given a gift, and I give plenty of gifts myself. But I think we could be a little smarter about the way we do this. That's just my thought. And I hope this has made you think today. And I hope that more and more people in the audience do things that are more along the lines of what can we do for the family this year together that everybody will appreciate long-term, and everybody maybe will even enjoy the activity of getting it done. And as great as I think that ending is, I, I'm going to finish with a song that doesn't really have much to do with it, other than it might be an example of a gift that we could give. Uh, 
an old bottle of wine, but kind of in keeping uh, with our recent discussions about cider making and even some questions about that today, cider and fruit wines and, and meads, I'm going to play a song that uh, it talks about that, and it also talks about understanding the value in things is not always based on their packaging or their marketing. Uh, this song's actually by a guy named uh, David Lee Murphy, and the song's called A Little Dust on the Bottle. It was a song I really enjoyed listening to back in my military days. So the Country Western Bar used to hang out at the NCO Club all the time, and uh, It's a song that even today I really appreciate, not just for the fact that it just sounds like a great song, uh, but it's got a really good message. I hope you enjoy it, and I'll be back tomorrow with uh, one more TSP before the final episode of the year, the Christmas episode. Can you help me, Creole? Got a little girl waiting on me and I, I want to trade it right. He said, I got what you need, son, as we sit down in the cellar. He reached through the cobweb as he turned on the light. He said, it might be a little dust on the bottom, but don't let it fool you about what's inside. There might be a little was racing as you climbed inside. You stayed a little bit close and broke down to the lake floor. Watched the sun fade in that big red sky. I reached under the front seat and said, now here's something special. It's just been waiting.